All right, we're going to be back in Titus and finish up chapter 3. So if you'll all open there. I do want to thank all of you for coming. This is kind of an off-the-cuff conference. We just kind of threw out the idea, you know, to see who might show up. And surprisingly, there are people here. So we're very thankful. We are too. We are too. We, we need to gather together as much as we can. We're living in a time when mutual support is going to be absolutely essential. God never designed us to stand alone. And, of course, we've got a wedding coming up this weekend. And marriage is the beginning of God's whole plan of people working together. So I appreciate you coming. Uh, I'm going to offer up a quick word of prayer, and then we'll launch into Titus chapter 3. Let's just join together at the throne of grace. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come once again for this final session to the throne of your grace, we want to thank you for watching over us, all the people who have traveled by air, by road, uh, we could have almost traveled by train to this place, but I uh, want to thank you for your watch care and protection. I want to thank you, Father, for the provisions you've made for us, accommodations and food, everything that we need. But above all, we need the presence of your Son and our Savior, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, but we realize that that works through the body. Father, we are thankful for each member that's here. We pray that we will have gained things during our time together that will make us more effective in the part that you have for us to play in that body. Open your word for us. Provide the illumination of God the Holy Spirit so that we can receive divine truth that's going to put on the armor of God for us, transform our lives, and help us run our race to the finish, to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray, amen. I mentioned at the very beginning that the book of Titus is built around three gospel summaries, and I'd just like to go back and touch on that a little bit. I wanna read all three of them this morning. I'm going to have to get that lifesaver out of my mouth. Um, because they are so important to the, the meaning and the thrust of the book, where Paul wants to take us uh, as he wrote this, really a personal letter to Titus. It's amazing that a personal letter that is so brief could last for 2,000 years and continue to be a source of strength, encouragement, and motivation to God's people. In the three gospel summaries, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the focus appears to be, and you know, one of the things that I was going to mention in the last conference in <clears throat> Peter, and I never did get around to it, whenever we outline a book, to a certain degree, we're imposing our understanding on the book. In other words, if you get 10 scholars together, if you want to use the term scholar, it's a term that's 
thrown around and misused a lot, but get 10 scholars of any book and have them come up with an outline, you're going to have 10 different outlines. There's going to be some similarity. But that outline is really that individual's perception of the book. It's related to the content of the book, so it's not going to be wrong. And that's why you can have different outlines of different books, and they're all good outlines. And they're all right. But they all give a little bit different slant or a little bit different focus to the book. And it's kind of the same when we <clears throat> come into a book like this and we look at the uh, three gospel messages and you try to summarize what is the meaning of that, that little gospel summary. Uh, it's very difficult because there are similarities in all three of them. There are things that stand out in each of them. So this is just a quick thing that I jotted down this morning as I was going through them again. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we have the hope of eternal life. And that's where everything begins. The promise of the gospel is the promise of eternal life. When we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are trusting Him to give us the gift of eternal life. So the hope of eternal life. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we see the power of a transformed life. The gospel is not just a one-shot message. As we'll see when we read through it again, the gospel has something to teach us. And as I said earlier, and I'm going to illustrate it here in just a moment, when you look at the work of Christ on the cross, all of the areas of theology are expounded and explained and amplified through the work of Christ on the cross. And we'll see that here in just a moment. So the power of a transformed life. And then today in chapter 3, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And we have the dynamic of a secure life. You know, one thing I've noticed through the years is that people who are not secure in their own mind regarding their salvation, people that do not understand the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of eternal security would better be termed the doctrine of eternal faithfulness. It's not so much about me being secure, it's about God being faithful to His promises. When you have doubts about your salvation or <clears throat> when you have fears that you might lose your salvation, your spiritual life is going to be anemic. You're never really going to grow. You're never really going to enter into the spiritual battlefield victoriously because victorious living can only be based on an absolutely secure foundation. When Paul says, other foundation no man can lay than that which God has laid, that foundation is secure. Everything we build on it may be gold, silver, and precious stones, or it may be wood, hay, and stubble. And that's not secure. But the foundation will never change. So the dynamic of a secure life. And if you will, just turn back to chapter 1, and I want to read these three together. I'm just going to go straight from chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 
to chapter 2, verse 11, and then to chapter 3, verse 4, and just kind of let the weight, the enormity of what Paul is able to put in these few verses. So starting in Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Right over to chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then right up to chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It, it's almost like those three were one statement or you know, one long paragraph because they, they almost just run one on to the next one. <clears throat> and I mentioned at the beginning, and I, I want to expand on this just a little bit before we come back to this. When we look at the cross, if I had a whiteboard here, I could illustrate this maybe a little bit better, but you might want to jot these notes down because I think this is really critical. <clears throat> we were talking earlier this morning, uh, Betty was talking about the church that they're in and how the pastor is teaching them through their doctrinal statement, which is a very important thing to do. People who are going to belong to a church need to understand what that church believes and why they believe it. And really, if you teach through a doctrinal statement, you should teach through systematic theology. So there are 10 basic areas of systematic theology, and you can take each one of them and look at the cross, and you have the essence of that area of theology. The, the ending ology, of course, just means the study of. So I'm going to give you the 10 areas of systematic theology, and I'm going to give you a very brief statement or a very brief uh, account of what we see regarding that doctrine in the cross. Again, it could be expanded endlessly. But here we go. We start with bibliology, and the reason that I start with bibliology is because everything that we know of God really comes to us through the Scripture. We can see the hand of God in creation. We know that God works through our conscience. We have that awareness of right and wrong, but really our understanding of God comes from the Bible. So what does the cross teach us about bibliology? The cross teaches us that the work of Christ is the central message of the Bible. 
Beginning in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and running all the way through. And you know, I've been studying this book for over 50 years, and I'm still finding things that suddenly come to the surface or that I become aware of that is pointing right to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So bibliology. And then we have theology. Theology, of course, is the study of God Himself. And what do we see when we look at the cross? We see the character of God displayed. The character of God. If you think through the old areas of divine essence that we all learned years ago, there's not a one of those that doesn't relate to the work of the cross. The sovereignty of God saw that Christ would come into the world in the fullness of time. The righteousness and justice of God are satisfied at the cross. What His righteousness demands, that is the judgment on sin, His justice fulfills by pouring out that judgment on Christ. The love of God is manifested in the cross. The offer of eternal life because, because God Himself is eternal life. The fact that He is omniscient. <clears throat> he knew before the world began that man would need a Savior, and we know that because at the very beginning of Titus we were told that He promised eternal life before the world began. Omnipotence, His power, not only to control the course of history, but His power over the fallen realm, <clears throat> His victory over Satan and sin and death. And then the omnipresence of God, that he is present in all places and with all people and that he is working to convict all men of the truth of what happened at the cross. The fact that he's immutable. God never changes. Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever as we're told in the book of Hebrews. If God changed, he could not be faithful and if he could not be faithful, we would not have eternal security. So try to think in your mind because as he said right here, God promised or uh, in the earlier, uh, one of the earlier sections, God who promised and cannot lie. That's where our security rests because he is immutable. He's unchanging. And then of course his veracity, the truth. What did he say there at the very beginning in the first reading? according to the acknowledgement of the truth that accords with godliness. So the veracity of God is demonstrated at the cross. So I've hit two. Have you gotten anything down that is maybe new to you or something you forgot? Anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. And I simply put here, when we look at the cross, we see the plight of the human race. Without Christ, we would be without hope and without eternal life. There would be no escape. There would be no deliverance. We would be looking at an eternal hell without escape, without end. And yet, Christ took the penalty in our place. Fourth, we have hamartiology. That's H-A-M-A-R-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Hamartiology is, of course, the study of sin, 
And this is, as we look at the cross and we see Christ going through spiritual death, we see the terrible price of sin. The terrible and the awful price of sin. And then we go to angelology. Angelology is the study of angels. The study of angels leads us to the elect and fallen angels. The study of the fallen angels leads us to the person of Lucifer. And we go back to Isaiah 14 and we see the fall of Lucifer. And then, of course, Genesis 3, the serpent in the garden and where the problem all began. So angelology. What do we see when we look at the cross? We see the elect angels looking down in absolute amazement and adoration. Peter tells us that they crane their necks to observe the things that are happening on this earth. He tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that one day we are going to judge angels. Again, I believe this is really what caused the fall of Lucifer. When the plan was revealed, when he understood that a lesser creature was going to be created that one day would be exalted above him, it was too much for his <clears throat> pride and his arrogance to take. And he rebelled. And we look at the cross and we see that instead of Lucifer's grasping for the throne, we see the Lord Jesus Christ willing to go to the throne through the cross. What an amazing contrast we see when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to the angels. Of course, you can go to Hebrews chapter 1 and the whole chapter is about the relationship and distinction between Jesus Christ and the angels. And then, of course, we study Christology. Christology is revealed fully at the cross. Even the disciples who lived with him, they walked with him, they ate with him, they, they traveled along the way with him, they ministered with him. And I'm sure Nan and I were just talking the other night, and she said, you know, I'll bet there were times the disciples just said, he's kind of weird. <laughs> and I said, you know what I always think? They must have said, doesn't he ever get hungry? Doesn't he ever get tired? Why doesn't he send these people away? We've been doing this days on end now. And yet he was relentless in his pursuit of reaching those people and meeting the needs of their souls. So in the study of Christology, we look at Christ on the cross, crucified and in anguish, and we see the love and the humility of God. The love and the humility of God. And I've mentioned this several times recently. As I look at Scripture and I see God portrayed in Christ, and He said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Through all of the books of theology that I have read, I have yet to find one book of theology that attributes the characteristic to Christ that was the preeminent, and that is humility. When Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that is godliness. All of the push, Paul uses the term godliness a lot in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, and he defines godliness for us in 1 Timothy 
God was manifested in the flesh. God revealed himself in the person of Christ. And so humility and love are expressed at the cross. And then we have soteriology, which is, of course, the study of salvation. That's S-O-T-E-R. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Always bear in mind that when we see the word save or save or salvation in Scripture, is not always talking about eternal salvation. Oftentimes, the book of James, for example, it's used five times. It is never used of initial salvation. Never. This is what gets people so screwed up when they go into the book of James. Faith without works is dead, and so they're trying to evaluate someone's uh, salvation based on what they see outwardly. The issue is not for the unsaved. James introduces us to his topic in James chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22 when he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and wickedness and the overflow of evil, receive the word implanted which is able to do what? Save your souls. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. Say, what, in what sense do believers need our saved soul? We need daily deliverance. And the only way we can get the daily deliverance is if we're willing to receive God's word implanted. That word implanted, by the way, is very interesting because it shows the uh, interaction and cooperation between the believer and the Holy Spirit. We have to be receptive. It's the Holy Spirit that plants the word in the soul. So even right now, while we're gathered together with our Bibles open and, and studying God's word, the question of whether this is going to stick is dependent on each of your receptiveness. If you're receptive, the Holy Spirit will take it and plant it in your soul. And when we receive the word implanted, it takes root and it grows. Okay, so we look at salvation, but here we're talking about eternal salvation. Really, it would include all of them. And we notice that it is a full and a free salvation. It's a full and a free salvation. And <clears throat> verse 5 here in chapter 3 is going to make that very clear. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done. It is according to His mercy. According to His mercy. We move then to our eighth area of systematic theology, which is pneumatology. Pneuma is spelled P-N-E-U-M-A. The Greeks pronounce, pronounce this pnevma. There are no silent letters. Uh, it's always interesting when you hear people pronounce Greek. By the way, pronunciation, you'll hear people pronounce Greek and they'll pronounce it different. There are reasons for that. Number one, Bible schools, no two Bible schools teach pronunciation the same. So you'll have guys at pastor's conferences, and I've seen this, no, it's pronounced this way, no, it's pronounced that way. You didn't say it right. Um, we have a pastor who is a very good uh, pastor, very faithful pastor, and he digs into the Word, and he will often bring out uh, the uh, Greek or the Hebrew words, which I appreciate very, very much. Uh, and he pronounces them, and Nan will say, he pronounced it wrong, or, you know, I'll say, 
That's not the way I would pronounce it. Really, the pronunciation is not the issue. So the Greek pronunciation of pneuma is pnevma, because they do not have silent letters. Well, so what? We don't speak Greek, we're speaking English. Uh, pneuma is the way that we pronounce it. It's no big deal. Another problem we run into in the pronunciation of Greek is I learned pronunciation from a Greek. He studied the original language as a Greek, as a Greek-speaking person, and he used modern Greek pronunciation. So when I was at Harlem Park, for example, there used to be pastors all around who did their one-year mandatory Greek course, and they were always saying, well, he doesn't know Greek, he pronounces it wrong because I wasn't using Bible college pronunciation, which by the way is an artificial, whoever came up with it was somebody who, I don't know what was wrong with them. They should have just gone to the modern Greek language. You know, people don't realize you can take a Greek text and hand it to a modern Greek and they can read it just like they could read any other book. So it's good for us not to get too wrapped up over inconsequential things like pronunciation, but there you have it. Pnevmatology, how do you like that one? <laughs> the salvation and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The salvation and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we often focus on the five salvation works of the Holy Spirit, but we need to also emphasize the sanctification works of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are so many things that the Spirit of God does to get us from the beginning to the end of the race. He gives us comfort. He provides illumination. He enlightens our souls. He brings conviction when we step out of line. He supplies discipline when discipline is necessary. And on and on and on. There's so many roles that the Holy Spirit plays. He implants the Word in our soul and then gives us the power supernaturally to make that become a reality in our life. So we should never forget the sanctifying works of the Holy Spirit. That leads us to number nine, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. And this, of course, from Ecclesia. And ecclesia is the word for the church. Um, and it simply means a gathering, an assembly. So here we are gathered as an assembly. And we are the church in this place. We look at the cross and what do we see about ecclesiology? We see the formation and the purpose of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church. And that began with the work of the cross. You know, there are so many things, people don't think about this. It's so important for us to understand the distinction between the old and the new covenant. There are people in the church age who are still trying to live according to the old covenant. I had a guy uh, while we were at the recent Arkansas conference and he said, why do we not still keep the Sabbath? Or I think his initial question was, how did the Sabbath turn into Sunday? And I said, it didn't. The Sabbath is a seventh day. When preachers say, we're here on this Sabbath morning, no, we're not. We're here on Sunday morning. 
Sabbath is Saturday, has always been Saturday. Well, why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, we're not under the Old Covenant. The Sabbath, as you study through the Old Testament, was not just one Sabbath. There was the Sabbath day. There was the Sabbath year. There was the year of Jubilee. There were seven Sabbaths every year that were high holy Sabbaths with each one of the feasts. If you're going to keep the Sabbath, you have to keep them all because they were all linked and tied together. In fact, in one of the prophets, I forget the reference right now, God's condemnation of Israel is that they have not kept my Sabbaths, plural. So that was under the Old Covenant. And the Sabbath, in all those different forms, was the sign of the covenant with Israel. On the cross, Jesus Christ put an end to the Old Covenant with the rending of the veil. In fact, I like to think of it this way. In the upper room, he inaugurated the new covenant. He inaugurated it. On the cross, he ratified the new covenant. In other words, he, he sealed it. And then he met with his disciples and he actually began the new covenant when he gathered with them, you remember? And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. What is the sign of the new covenant? See and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's mentioned, of course, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was the key to the new covenant. So that's a long kind of round the backside of the barn explanation. But we look at the cross and we see the formation and the purpose of the church. And then finally, eschatology. Eschatology is a study of last things. And at the cross, we look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we realize having accomplished His work, He is coming again. And that, of course, includes not just the cross itself, but the resurrection. The sin could not defeat Him. The grave could not hold Him. The cross couldn't stop him. As I said in our conference in Arkansas, we serve a king the world did not crown. And we look for a kingdom the world cannot destroy. That is a phenomenal summary, and I didn't come up with it. I borrowed it from someone whose name I don't remember. We serve a king the world did not crown. And we look for a kingdom the world cannot destroy. And Nan reminded me while we were in Arkansas, and I forgot to bring it up, but we often talk about the plan of God for our life, the wonderful plan of God for our life. And she reminded me, Gregory Kukul turned that around and he said, it's not the wonderful plan of God for my life. It's my life for the wonderful plan of God. Kind of changes the emphasis, doesn't it? You know, when you change the emphasis, it makes everything different. You'll learn that if you go to Australia because they don't talk like we do around here. All right, so that's a lot. I'm going to. Is this even on there? 
think so. I don't believe it is. I'm going to have to do it over. Huh? You have to do it over now. Whatever. Okay. Um, let's quickly uh, work our way through this chapter in light of, I want to start right here with the essence in the gospel. We'll, we'll do a quick run through of the chapter and then I'm going to open it up and see if there are any questions over the things that we've covered and would be done. When the kindness of God our Savior toward man appeared. When did it appear? Remember? Chapter 1, verse 3, in due time. Galatians 4, 4, at the right time. At the fullness of time. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior, just a quick connection for you. God our Savior in verse 4 connects over to chapter 2 and verse 10. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, which connects down to chapter 2 and verse 13. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then it connects to chapter 3 and verse 6. Jesus Christ our Savior. We can speak of God the Father as our Savior, God the Holy Spirit as our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Paul, uh, because the Holy Spirit always chooses to hide himself, uh, usually is not spoken of in direct sense like that, but we hear, here we have God referring to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When the kindness and the love well, wait a minute. Down in verse 11, it's the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's kindness and love. Paul's actually defining his own terms. The grace of God is expressed through the kindness and the love of God. When the kindness of God and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared. Here it says toward man. Man in the singular is a reference to what? Mankind. Mankind. Look up at verse 2. All men. See that? Showing humility to all men. Notice over in chapter 2 and verse 11, the grace of God brings salvation has appeared to all men. We call it the unconditional work of Christ on the cross. Unconditional election, if you will. That drives the Calvinist crazy. What does it mean? Every person was covered in the work of Christ on the cross. How do we know that? Stop and think about this. The proof that the work of Christ covered every member of the human race is John 3, 16 through 19 tells us no one goes to hell for their sin. No one goes to hell for their sins. Why? Because the sins are paid. Their sins, if you go to 2 Corinthians 5.19, what does it tell us? Not imputing their sins to them. Why did God not impute sins to members of the human race? Because all of them were imputed to Christ. So people go to hell not because the sins of their sins, they go to hell because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. These are very important distinctions, and yet I'll tell you the tragedy is that I would say in 99% of the churches in this country, you, you would not be able to 
hear those distinctions, and if you brought them up, you'd probably be accused of being a heretic. I mean, I have often, all around the world, as well as in this country, made the statement, no unbeliever goes to hell for their sins. And I see pastors sit up like, you know, because, I mean, if you take that out of the uh, hellfire and brimstone message of the typical Baptist church, you're going to go to hell for your sins. Well, when you take that away, you just took their club away. You don't have anything to beat anybody over the head with. Not by works of righteousness, he moves on in verse 5. The kindness and the love of God toward man is not by works of righteousness that we have done. Goes back, of course, to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to add to our salvation. I was going to say something, but... You know, sometimes I get ready to say something and then I realize that people where I'm going are going to be listening to it and they might take it wrong. So sometimes the Spirit doesn't catch me in time and then I end up in trouble. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. According to his mercy, down in chapter 2 and verse 11, it's the grace of God. Here it's the mercy of God. What is the difference? Well, the difference is God's grace supplies us everything that we don't deserve. God's mercy withholds from us everything that we deserve. So in the grace of God, we have all of the provisions of all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. In the mercy of God, we have the removal of all condemnation. There is, therefore, Romans 8.1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? All of that condemnation was moved through the mercy of God. If God dealt with any of us, today without mercy we would be a smoking cinder on the floor mercy withholds what we deserve he saved us this reference of course to eternal salvation through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the holy spirit and the word washing here is the same one that jesus used in john 13 10 when he said to peter he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet it's the word luo. It equates to the Old Testament idea of the labor of cleansing. It's also the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.26 that Jesus sanctified us by the washing of water by the word. It's the idea of the bath of salvation. Here he calls it the washing of regeneration or the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit is renewed to us. It means that the Holy Spirit makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So at the moment of salvation, God withheld from us all that we deserve because of his kindness and love, and he poured out on us the cleansing of the new birth 
and the new creation of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I just like to emphasize the idea of pouring out takes us back, of course, to Pentecost. At Pentecost, it was a group thing with us. It's personal and individual at the moment of salvation, but I stress the word abundantly. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know there are times that we doubt it. I know there are times when we're going through adversity and difficulty that we would deny it, but that word abundant means that you have all the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit that you will ever need. It's everything you're ever going to need. Provided by the Spirit to the believer in this place in time. Why is all of this given to us? Verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now he looks at the big picture. And of course, we've talked about inheritance before. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3, 20, 29. And 4.7, where he reminds us that because we're children, we're heirs. Every child of God is an heir of God. Every child of God has an eternal inheritance. Now that inheritance can be enhanced. You can add to it by eternal reward. And Paul picks this idea up in Romans 8 and verse 17. When he says, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. The joint heirs with Christ has to do with the addition. Spiritual, eternal reward. Crowns and everything that we've studied so many times. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life, and every time we see hope, there's two things we should think about. Number one, hope is an absolute certainty based on the infallible promises of God. Hope makes not ashamed. Why? Because the one who promised is faithful. The second thing hope should remind us is it is, I hate to use this analogy, it's rather crude, it's the carrot on the stick in front of the donkey. Hope leads onward. Hope is future, as Paul says in Romans 8, a hope that is seen is not hope. We don't hope for what we have. We hope for what we don't have. And if we are living in hope, and I talked about the fact that hope is a living hope, it's a purifying hope, it's a blessed hope, it should keep on constantly urging us and moving us forward, the hope of eternal life. That's the essence of the chapter. With that out of the way, I'm going to very quickly just read through the chapter, make a couple of comments and then I'll open the floor for any questions you may have. And remember that Paul is writing to Titus about putting things in order in the local churches, and so he begins verse 1 by saying, remind them. Now, I just reminded some of you of the ten areas of divine uh, study, theology, ten areas of systematic theology. You say, well, I knew that. I've, I've heard that before. 
It's amazing how many times scripture emphasizes the importance of review. I think three or four times in 2 Peter, he says, now I'm writing this to remind you. I'm reminding you of what you already know. Reminder is important. So remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Let me just comment here that there are times when the only right thing to do is to disobey the government. We know this from Daniel 3. We know this from Daniel 6. We know this from the disciples, the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 9. I think chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. So there are times we have to disobey. When a government reverses the order of God's plan for government, and we're given that plan in 1 Peter 4, what is it? The reward of those that are good and the punishment of those that are evil. Well, what do you do when a government begins rewarding those who are evil, which it's now doing, and punishing those who are good? That government has nullified its authority. It no longer is a bona fide government, either in the eyes of God or in the eyes of men. I would encourage you, if you're interested in doing uh, in reading a little more on this, get the book. Uh, what is the book? The uh, Lesser Magistrates, something like the Authority of the Lesser Magistrates. Uh, it's a book that actually comes out of like the 15 or 1600s, and the church actually stood up to the evil authorities in government by going to their local magistrates. And it illustrates the principle that I think people are beginning to wake up to, and that is government is local, local, local. The most important elections, the most important vo votes that you're going to cast are always going to be local. Because your local magistrates can stand up to, and if the states in America had any courage at all, there would be states seceding from the union. There is absolutely no reason why sane, truth-seeking, honorable people should be led along by the nose in, into the evil that they're leading us into. We should show humility to all men, but humility is the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist and a multitude of other people teach us is not being a milksop. It's not weakness. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Anybody not fit into that description? You know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is when we still do. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Whenever disobedience, deception, lust, pleasures, malice, envy, hateful, uh, activity comes in, what do we do? We nip it in the bud. Take it to the Lord, confess it, acknowledge it, trust Him for the cleansing of it, trust the Spirit for the breaking of the power of it. I'll jump right over the Gospel summary here, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly 
that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Good works always refers, of course, <clears throat> to the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just human good, it's divine good. The fruit of the Spirit. The word maintain reminds us of the importance of routine and discipline. <clears throat> I noticed Colonel Ken out putting some mileage in this morning, and it just reminded me as I was reading over this of the importance of routine. You know, I have routines that I do when we're traveling. A lot of times, the only workout I can get is in a motel room, and I've boiled it down to three things, push-ups, sit-ups, and squats. Just very simple thing. Sometimes as we get older, we can't do one or the other. Substitute something else. By the way, if you want something that can really change your whole life, and you can talk to Ken and Sharon about it, Get on Dr. Living Good. He has a 10-minute workout every morning. You do it six days a week. It will literally transform your life. You say, who could work out six minutes and get any, or 10 minutes and get anything out of it? Trust me. You do his morning workout for 10, 10 minutes a morning, six days a week is one hour a week. Is that right? Yeah, I lost 20 pounds. He lost 20 pounds. Him and Sharon were transformed. We saw them after they got on it, and I went, whoa, what happened? Yeah, what happened? Uh, Nan and I do it on occasion. Uh, it's hard for us to always get on and be able to do it. Nan's more faithful than I am, you can tell by her figure. Um, but seriously, no one can't devote 10 minutes a day. And they have three different levels, and you can do whatever level is at your ability, and you just push yourself to move to the next level. I'll tell you what, we do it sometimes. <clears throat> they had one one time, and they'll usually do three different exercises, and they had this one next exercise. Like that. That's not going to do anything. And they do each exercise for like a minute. I'll tell you what, I was sucking wind. <laughs> Sucking wind, it was tough. So I encourage you, get on Dr. Living Good. <clears throat> I'm not promoting him and I don't get kickbacks, but <clears throat> really, when you think of discipline and, and uh, the, just the idea of routine, I think he's come up with the best that I've ever seen. And I've studied all kinds of programs. I think he's the best I've ever seen. Plus, I believe he's a believer. So talk to Ken and Sharon because they took advantage of it and I think they would admit that it changed their life. All right. Good works, by the way, is mentioned six times in the book. It's important. Repetition. What does repetition tell us? Repetition tells us the author is trying to make a point. You know, when 10 times in Genesis 1, it says God created, God made, or, you know, God looked and it was good. All of those repetitions are telling us that this is important. Verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. <clears throat> 
I was just talking with someone earlier this morning and I was saying Satan is infiltrating churches. Not always with Satanists. Not always with a demon-possessed person, but troublemakers. The devil loves to use, how was it, a black preacher came into our Bible college chapel and he said, Satan loves to use the master's plan against the master's people masterfully. And I never forgot it because here I am all these years later. <clears throat> the devil uses the master's plan against the master's people masterfully. And he'll bring people in that are just disruptors, troublemakers, people that cause divisions. So what's the solution? Reject means to thrust away from you. Kick them out. You give them the first and the second admonition. You give them a chance to correct themselves, they don't do it. You give them a second chance to correct themselves and they don't do it, and you give them the boot. And it's important that pastors be willing to do that. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning being self-condemned. In other words, they are the work of their own hands. Their spiritual condition is the product of their own doing. They're twisted. And they keep on sinning and they condemn themselves by their own conduct. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis for I have decided to spend the winter there. We know that Paul had been released from his first imprisonment. He was preparing his case uh, for Rome and apparently Zenos, the lawyer, uh, was a guy that was going to help him. Apollos, of course, the uh, great preacher that uh, came to Corinth, send them on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. In other words, get them here quickly because they're going to help my case. Uh, we don't know how long the Apostle Paul was out. Uh, wasn't very long. He was rearrested uh, and taken back into uh, custody and ultimately beheaded. Uh, again, uh, we, we have to sort of estimate dates and times and things like that, and different people you read will give you different estimates of the time. It's not worth really arguing about. Verse 14, what do you say at the end when you want people to remember it? You say the important thing, let our people learn to maintain good works. That's the last use of good works there, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. The worst thing in the Christian life is to be an unfruitful Christian. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And thus endeth the book of Titus.